Welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Laura Loosewood. Laura, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Melissa. I'm delighted to be here. Laura, I am going to touch on your incredibly impressive bio firstly, so that people who haven't come across you before are aware of who I'm talking to. So excuse me a minute while I sort of look down and, and work my way through this. So Laura's the Secretary General of the Council of Women World Leaders and the former Managing Director and Senior Advisor at Goldman Sachs. In uh, August 1996, Laura co-founded the Council of Women World Leaders with President Figda Svenbagadada of Iceland, located at the UN Foundation in Washington, DC. Laura is the Secretary General of the Council, which is composed of women presidents, prime ministers, and heads of government. It's the only organization of its kind globally. From 2001 to 2016, Laura was also named Managing Director, Global Leadership and Diversity for Goldman Sachs, and later became a Senior Advisor, and continues to speak to audiences globally on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Laura has an MBA from Harvard Business School, um, a law degree from the University of California, and is admitted to practice law in California and Massachusetts. After the events of 9-11, I found this fascinating, Laura, she became a reserve police officer in the Washington DC Metropolitan Police Department and retired as a sergeant. Laura is the author of four books, The Loudest Duck, Moving Beyond Diversity, The Elephant and the Mouse, Women World Leaders and Serving Them Right. She's a longtime participant with the World Economic Forum and is a steward of the forum's education, gender and work initiative. Laura, I could keep going on. There are so many achievements and, and fascinating aspects of your career. But again, thank you for joining us. And I might just ask for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, can I get you to start explaining to us, you know, who you are and, and let's start focusing on you and your journey? Well, the who you are question is always one that's a it's, a, it's a continual work in progress, isn't it, Melissa? Yeah, all of us are that. Uh, and uh, as I look back on my career, and that's the only way you can sort of make any sense of looking at yourself in the rearview mirror and saying, okay, were there some common themes? You know, how did you, why did you make these decisions? Because when you're in the moment, you're not necessarily conscious that you're on some sort of path. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I like, the, there's a wonderful book uh, by Mary Catherine Bateson called uh, Composing a Life. And she specifically references women who kind of, build on their lives, they have a set of experiences, and then they move into another set. Unlike a lot of men who say, okay, I'm going to become the CEO, and this is how I'm going to get there. You know, we kind of meander our way through, and then we end up where we end up with what appears to be, and for me, has been a, a set of very rich experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, but they just kind of build on each other. So, and I'm, I'm an experiential learner, you know, so I like to get my hands on things. Um, for example, you know, I did go around the world and I met at the time all the living women presidents and prime ministers, right? And because I wanted to know what it'd be like to have a woman president in the United States. That was my question. Uh, you've at least solved it somewhat in Australia with your prime minister, Julia Gillard. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, um, you know, that was when I think about that, I probably should have started with small town mayors, you know, interviewing them. And then moving on to heads of state and government. No, I just said, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's, 
as I say, it's a continual work in progress. I'm never quite sure what the next thing is going to be, but it does build on itself. There is some logic to it. And, and then, you know, we, we all then begin to say, okay, well, I have this set of experiences. Maybe I can use these set of experiences. You know, an example for me might be, so yes, I, I did become a police officer after 9-11. Uh, it was a really important and eventful kind of thing for me. And I, you know, and I've seen both the, the extraordinariness of being a police officer and some of the tragedy uh, that we have seen uh, in, in, some, in some police activity and actions. Um, but now, for example, I'm on a board that looks at one of the police agencies in this, in this region of the DC region. And, um, you know, it combines my police experience with my diversity and inclusion experience because we look at issues around use of force or racial discrimination issues and things like that. And so I can, you know, I can kind of straddle both sides with that. And that, you know, that that gives me that's very satisfying to be able to take both sets of experiences with me. Wait, let's go back to your sort of upbringing and values and how they shaped you. I'm keen to understand how you sort of ended up in the in the diversity inclusion space. Um, you know, so what appears to be so early in your career, maybe it's not, but I'll I'll open up that question for you. Well, it wasn't quite initially too too early. I mean, I come from a family that was relatively blue collar. Uh, what is interesting is my father was a police officer. Uh, so, you know, that sense of familiarity with being a police officer was always there for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, basically blue collar, uh, neither my parents had high school or college uh, degrees, uh, but, you know, they very much encouraged the, myself and my brother and my sister to get educated. We had, you know, I remember one high school uh, guidance counselor coming to our home and seeing this wall of books. Uh, that she didn't normally see in kind of blue collar houses. And so that was, you know, an important part of our upbringing. And so education was always a part of that. And I'd gotten involved in politics when I was in, younger in California. And so I went into got political science degree and then still not knowing what I was going to do. I figured that, well, most politicians or people around politics had a law degree. So, okay, I'll go and apply and get a law degree. Well, you know, being a lawyer, I often liken it, you know, you go into law school as chuck steak and you come out as hamburger meat and you're not quite sure that that's what you want it to be. Now, I will never, you know, deny that my law background has been very useful for me and pra I practiced law uh, for a short period of time, but I did it in the sort of gender discrimination world. So that was part of that. And then, I really decided, well, you know, maybe I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so maybe I should think about business. And <clears throat> so I decided, well, I would apply to one business school. And if I didn't get into that business school, I wouldn't go. And I wanted it to be outside of California because I'd been educated in California. So I applied to, to the, as they call it, the well-known Eastern Business School in Boston, in Cambridge. And so I did get into the Harvard Business School. And so then I went to, you know, to the business school, um, which was an interesting experience in and of itself, uh, because when I was there, uh, most of the men had a sense of the divine right to rule uh, yes. <laughs> there, which was interesting. But you know, it turns out the combination of the business degree and the law degree were very useful for me. 
So that allowed me to go into business and that's how I you know, started. Well, first and foremost, I had to get a very high, high paying job uh, to pay off the school loans that I'd had yeah. for doing all that education. So that's kind of what launched me into all of this. And, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting, you know, credentializing for me. And as you know, women have to be credentialized quite a bit. Um, and so that, um, the education has held me in good stead. And of course, I've met some extraordinary people along the way. So if we think, then think about sort of navigating your career, um, so you're very well credentialed, um, you're, you're now in the world of business. What was it like navigating your career at that point in time? You know, were there, did you move quickly through the organisation? How did that kind of work? Um, I would have to say I stumbled initially, you know, and uh, that turns out to be an okay thing to do. You know, uh, the first job I took was uh, with a consulting company uh, and I was completely out of my depth. You know, here I was never having had any business experience and I'm supposed to tell CEOs what they're supposed to do. It made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. It made yeah. no sense. So that was, you know, but it was the highest paying job and, you know, it was uh, the, the definitely the, the silver object to, to go after. But I realized that it was just not me. Uh, and But I did end up then working for a company, TWA at the time, where I got an operational job. And for that, I do say to women, you know, get those kinds of operational experiences, get those P&L responsibilities, yeah. right? And so I did that, you know, and I did that for a number of years with them. I ran a charter operation for them. I ran some, some you know, airports and sales offices, et cetera. And that was, that was a fundamentally great experience for me. And that's where I got a lot of the, uh, ideas around service quality, because mm -hmm. there's so many metrics in, you know, in an airline that you have to meet just by safety standards, right, that it really held me in good stead. So often I will tell women, you know, start off if you can with that solid, you know, P&L responsibility, then you can do something else if you want. So that that was very useful for me. Now, then I, you know, again, I've ended up in a sort of a career that's, um, I then got onto I got onto this idea of meeting the heads of state, and uh, you know that was sort of a project. Well, so I ended up consulting so I could still have money coming in and going around the world meeting these heads of state, which then turned put me into a whole different direction of you know working with these leaders, creating a council of them, um, and becoming the secretary general. But I still did keep my hand into the consulting world for a while, and. Um, you know, I was, you know, was fortunate to uh, be invited to come uh, work for Goldman Sachs uh, for a number of years, an excellent company for me, uh, even though, you know, I was voted most likely to fall asleep in my finance class uh, at business school. So people <laughs> often had a little bit of an arched eyebrow when they said I went to Goldman Sachs, but I went, as, you know, with the responsibility of leadership and uh, diversity. Yeah. Oh, that's and, that's so, yeah, it's just, you know, you sort of, so for, I, I, you know, it was interesting when I interviewed the heads of state and all, almost all of them expressed that they were over scrutinized, you know, that their communication, their dress, their hairstyles, you know, you name it, you still hear it today, right? They were all over scrutinized. The tolerance for mistakes was less for women than the tolerance for mistakes for men. Nothing you haven't heard. Right. Absolutely. Um, and so they would almost all of them said 
if they did not have a passion for what they were doing, they would give up. Yeah. And so when young women ask me about leadership, I often say, what is it you're passionate about? Because if you're passionate about something, you're likely to take on what you're calling that brave leadership. Yes. So that's that's how I look at it. You, you continue to hone yourself to understand what your passions are. Laura, what was the, I mean, you know, fascinating to just embark on this idea of interviewing all of these state leaders. What what sat behind, I mean, it's obviously a deep curiosity, but what was the question you you were trying to answer there? You know, it was one of these, I often joke and say, it was one of these in the shower questions, you know, you have them. You're in the shower, you know, and generally speaking, most of those in the shower questions should stay in the shower, uh, you know, basically. Uh, but this one was, what would it be like if we had a woman president in the United States? Yes. Not so arbitrary because it was, I had read some research from the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers, and it was the first quantitative study I had ever read about how women legislated differently than men. These were state legislators. And as you know, you can, there's, there's a difference between quantitative analysis and anecdote. Mm-hmm. So this was that first one, that there was enough that they could do this analysis and say, okay, this is definitively what happens. And it showed that women state legislators introduced, Democrat or Republican in our country, introduced you know, different bills. They interacted with their constituents differently. They handled committees differently. So that's what got me then to project that and say, oh, well, if that were the case, what would happen if we had a woman president? What might change in the country? You know, but of course, when I was doing this work, there, there was not, and there still is not anyone in the United States to answer that question. So we live in hope on that uh, on that particular one, um, probably more more than hope um, um, in that regard. But what did you find? So when you started having all of these conversations, what did you find? Well, I mean, you find you, you come up with a variety of things. First and foremost, I will say that there were fifteen women living at that moment who were then or had been president or prime minister of their country. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now I have to say. I have no idea why I thought I could meet a woman president or prime minister, right? I'm not from CNN. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've never asked anyone what kind of a tree they would be if they were a tree. So my interview skills weren't that good, you know, but I will tell you, um, interestingly, this is going to sound pretty odd, but the year before I embarked on this project, I bicycled across Siberia. Now, don't do it. (laughs) I did it, but don't do it. Okay. Now, your primary emotion when bicycling across Siberia, right, is fear. You are fearful constantly. There's nobody out there. It's not like you had cell phone service. You know, yes, we had, you know, support for it. But when you start bicycling in Siberia with the 24-hour sun, you're by yourself. At that point, it's going to add loneliness to that as well. But well, uh, you could add loneliness, but you know, pretty much fear was the. But you know, one of the things that I discovered was that if I did not harness and control that fear, it would debilitate me. Mm. 
it, it would just de-energize me. Yes. So what I decided to do was to say, okay, once a day, I'm taking this fear out of my backpack and I'm looking at it. And I'm going, yep, yep, fearful, yep, yep. And I'm putting it back. So that was really a primary. So it's, I sort of, what, uh, increase my tolerance for fear or something? Yeah. Because you could say you could be kind of fearful asking for these, these, these uh, appointments. Now, the other lesson of that is if I had never asked for the interviews, the answer is always no. Ah, uh, Laura, I feel like I'm talking to myself. Um, you know, <laughs> I've got to work up towards the uh, female presidents. But incredible. I, I so understand everything you're saying. So you did. You asked. I asked. Yeah. And of the 15, not one of them turned me down for an interview. And Margaret Thatcher did say, come back after you've met everyone else. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you yeah. did. Well, that was her way of getting rid of me, yeah. but, you know, true to her word. And because I am an experiential learner, I was eternally grateful. I'd met 14 other prime ministers before I got to Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. <laughs> but, you know, each one of them, what was fascinating was another lesson learned. My interviews were getting longer and longer and longer because each of them, because I'm the only person who's met them all, each of them wanted to know the answers that the others had given. Yes. Right? Because one of the things that happens to women, I think, if we don't have someone else who's been in a similar circumstance tell us, oh, yeah, that's happening to me, mm -hmm. right? For women, if we don't have that, we think there must be something wrong with us. Absolutely. Right? Yes. You know, there's something wrong. So, and th then we sort of put, make it pathological. Oh, my God, there's something, you know, I'm doing something terrible. But when you can talk to other women and they go, oh, yeah, exact same thing happened to me. You know, then you go, oh, OK, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's society. Maybe it's the culture. Maybe it's the, you know, the acceptance levels. It's whatever mm -hmm. to remove that sort of. And that's what I think a lot of women, they, they, they potentially lose their confidence because they think, oh, What's wrong with me? Yeah. What am I doing wrong? But in fact, they're not doing anything wrong. Yeah. It's just how society is reacting to them. When did the um, idea of a first book come about? Well, it came, the service quality book came about when I became, in the United States, what's called a Malcolm Baldridge National Quality a Senior Examiner. And so that was a really in-depth look at both manufacturing and service companies and their quality okay. know, zero zero to, uh, zero error kind of thing so okay. i learned a lot and wrote this book uh what started out to be 50 ways to lose your customer and turned it into this service quality book then the, i had uh I, I brought camera crews with me i picked up camera crews in countries and uh that became then a pbs documentary and then, uh, you know, the, the book arose out of the, the interviews themselves. And I will say, you know, again, I didn't really have any ideas how to interview people, how to, you know, use camera crews, anything like that. But what I did was I just, I would ask people, you know, I'd ask, I asked, you know, a couple of Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, yes. you know, um, how do you do it? What, what are the best questions to ask, you know? And people were so willing to help me. And so that's how you can build up your sense of how to do something like this. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so I circle back then to uh, the 15 um, uh, women that you have interviewed at this point in time. What, what then happened? Like how did the idea come about to create, um, to create the general council? Yeah, well, it actually became very straightforward for me because I was hearing so many of the same experiences from them, I finally just started asking them if they wanted to meet each other. Yeah. And see, that's what I'm saying. What happens, I couldn't have anticipated that, right? But you can just make this logical jump. Well, I'm hearing all these same things. What if they meet each other? And they said, yes, they would be interested. So I went back to Washington and collaborated with a think tank in Washington, D.C., where we created a summit in Stockholm for these world leaders. And most of them came. And I then had, I did a, quite a bit of research on head of state organizations, you know, what they look like and how they were composed and how they, you know, all of that. And so then we had this meeting with these heads of state and I proposed, and Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, chaired that meeting. And I proposed creating this council of these leaders. Again, I didn't anticipate any of this going, you know, in, in, in the past. And they all agreed, they wanted a council. So Mary Robinson asked President Vigdis of Iceland, and you did a good job of pronouncing her name. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, they, she asked President Vigdis and me to co-found uh, the council, which we did. And so we initially put it at the Kennedy School. Uh, Dean uh, Joe Nye invited us to come to the Kennedy School. And um, so what happens is we have a chair and that rotates periodically. And she invites any newly elected, freely elected yes. woman, head of state or head of government to join. And so for that reason, my understanding is President Figdis was the first female democratically elected to president? Correct. Yes, Correct. okay. So it's, it's sort of symbolic that, that she was one of the founders. Yeah, and Sarima Bandaranaika was the first woman prime minister to be elected from Sri Lanka. Okay. So, and yeah, and so now our current chair, interestingly, is Katrin Jakob's daughter, who is the um, prime minister of Iceland again. So it's kind of come full circle in that regard. Uh, but uh, we now have 86 members of the council. So there are 86, so almost all of the former and almost all of the sitting heads of state are members. And, um, and hoping for fast growth. Well, we do hope, you know, the, the interesting thing is once you're a member, you stay a member. Yes. So the real question is how many sittings do you have at any one time? And generally speaking, that that's usually 10 to 15 sitting at any one time. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to go a heck of a lot more than that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm dying to ask you being surrounded by all of these leaders, um, in your opinion, are leaders born or made? You know, um, well, you know, that what is that phrase? Some people, you know, are born to leadership. Some people achieve leadership and some people have leadership thrust upon them. Mm. Right? Yes. Uh, we're seeing a classic example of that uh, tragically in the Ukraine where, you know, this man, Zelensky, is having leadership thrust yes. upon him. Absolutely. Right? And with the women leaders, about a third, a little less now, but about a third come to power after their husbands or fathers have been assassinated. Oh, wow. Yeah, this will be in countries where you would least expect to see a president or a prime minister. 
right? The Pakistans of the world, yes. you know, Philippines of the world, or the Sri Lankas, or whatever, and everything. Um, so that's the thrust upon, mm -hmm. you know, them, and what happens with them, and how successful are they? Um, so I'm not sure it's it, you know. I think if you say born, the problem with born is we have so many archetypes of what leaders look like, you know, that if you happen to be, you know, arbitrarily born where, where you're going to be ultimately tall, you know, or you're going to ultimately be white, or you're going to ultimately be male. Well, you know, uh, those are genetic, of course, but that just be, that's just because we have archetypes of what leaders look like, you know, so the born part is a little you know, is a little iffy to me, you know, the achieve part, I think, is more likely, you know, how, 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 how are leaders created over time, you know, and I personally think that for, for women, we all have leadership capacity within us. We all do, you yes. know, because if you look at the traits of good leaders, what are they? They're traits that are non-gendered, right? You know, they, they have ideas. They have ability to communicate their ideas. They create a sense of trust, a sense of hope, right? They help others achieve their their goals in life. Those are gender neutral traits. You know, those aren't just exclusively male traits. So the traits of good leaders, to me, fall either with male or female. Now, what society accepts or welcomes or approves of, different question. Different mm -hmm. You know, the best definition I've ever heard, read, came from what Vivaldi said made the best composer. He said, the best composer has a cool head and a hot heart. Yeah. So that cool head, that practical, how are we going to get from A to B? But that hot, hot heart, how can I get other people to charge up the hill with me? You know, how can I get people to, to follow me with that? Yeah, but you know, tr unfortunately, we do have these archetypes, which have a tendency. And you know, what are archetypes? Archetypes mean that, you know, for example, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's book and Blank, where he talks about sixteen percent of men in the United States are six feet or taller, which one hundred eighty-four centimeters, right? Mm -hmm. You know, sixteen percent—that's the grouping. But then, when you look at Fortune five hundred male CEOs, fifty-seven percent of them. So that's four times the cohort, right? And yet, I don't know about you, Melissa, but I've yet to read any research that correlates leadership ability and With skeletal heart. structure and yeah. skeletal structure. Yes. I've yet to read any research that correlates those two things. Absolutely. But we have an archetype, mm -hmm. right? So you're six foot tall, you walk into the room, everyone goes, oh, leader, yeah. you know, until you open your mouth and start talking. And then everyone goes, oh, maybe not leader, maybe yeah. not, yeah. you know, but you're five, nine or shorter, you walk into the room, nobody says leader until you prove it. Yes. That's the difference. That's how an archetype works. One gets it until they lose it. One doesn't have it until they prove it. Two totally different things. Wow. Um, I, I want to ask you um, about, I recently saw you speak at an OECD um, conference and it was to do with COVID recovery mm. and one of the things that and I've, I've got 
um, some of the words that you used in front of me here that I really want to explore with you. And it is touching on this sort of archetype, but it's talking about the fact that all leaders bring something different to the table was the conversation that you were having. So it's getting into the diversity, but it was talking about different leadership traits. And one of the quotes you had was that women have the traits of leadership that we need today. Can I ask you to kind of just broaden out, what do you mean when you say that? Okay, here's what I mean. The best leaders have the most tools in their toolbox, right? Okay. So there are times when you are a leader, when it is useful and helpful to have a command and control style, right? Mm -hmm. So if the building is burning, you want the leader to say, go through door A now. Yes. Right? You don't want the leader to say, you know, I'm thinking we might want to go through door A, but I want to hear what everybody else has to say about that. Absolutely. You don't want that. You want command and control. But command and control doesn't always work in other situations. In the situations where you want to hear differing ideas, different perspectives, the diversity, the cognitive diversity that people bring, then you want people to be open to, to other ideas, to be listening, to have the empathy that goes along, to have that inclusion kinds of traits, right? The collaboration traits. So you want someone to say, well, you know, let's discuss A. What do you think about it? What about B? You know, so you want that kind of inquiring curiosity. And and bringing in collaboration, cooperation, etc. So my point being is that women have a tendency, because of their non-dominant style, right? Because they've been non they've been historically underrepresented. They have developed a different style of leadership than those who have been historically overrepresented in leadership. Okay? And what I'm just saying is that we need to raise the value of that which the non-dominant groups bring to leadership and appreciate the value that dominant groups bring, but not say that's the major thing. That's the, that's the fundamental way we need to approach things. We need to look at it and say, what approach is better for the set of circumstances? Yeah. And that's where my, you know, whole the book of the elephant and the mouse came about. Exactly right? what I was going to ask you, because it really moves straight into that right now. And um and that book could not have landed at a better time for me in terms of my exploration of all of this. So, so help us understand what's the purpose, I guess, of that book? What, what, what is that book saying? What message do you hope people step away from it with? Well, there's several messages. Uh, the first and foremost one is um, that for people to understand, you know, I'll get into the elephant and mouse theory, but the precursor to that is to understand why some of the, the diversity has been so slow, you know, why we are confusing uh, uh, intention with impact or effort with outcome, right? Because what happens is, and this is what this notion of the illusion of inclusion is, and that's Cheryl Kaiser's work, the illusion of inclusion, which is we do all of these programs. You know, we have all the stuff we're doing with diversity and you use, Companies will just do, give you a laundry list of things they're doing, and they'll be in the annual report, right? So what happens psychologically is we think, well, we're doing all of these programs. Therefore, 
we must be a fair organization. Yes. By the very fact we're doing all these programs. Mm. Not quite measuring or understanding is all of that effort creating the outcome. So that's one issue that I think is causing this slowness. The other issue is what I is what I say is a myth of meritocracy, mm-hmm. right? That you know, I, I, as I often say, you know, I've never met anyone who got to the top of an organization who said, "I got to the top of this organization because I was subtly advantaged." Yes. Nobody says that, mm-hmm. right? They say, I got to the top because this is a meritocracy and only the best get to the top. Yes. Yes. Little understanding, and this is the elephant, little understanding, the lived experiences of many other people within the organization. Little understanding that there's subtle gatekeepers keeping some people from getting up there, right? Mm -hmm. But not knowing what those gatekeepers are because particularly elephant dominant groups have a tendency to believe, well, the rest of the world works just the way it works for me. Yes. Not really understanding that the world does not work that way for other people, particularly non-dominants, the mouse, if you will. Yes. And one of the things that principles behind this is that organization leaders need to move from this elephant way of being, which is, I don't know, you know, I know a lot about me, but I don't know much about the, the mouse group, right? The non-dominant groups. Yes. Whereas the non-dominant groups must know everything about the dominant groups. Dominant groups don't know much about non-dominants, but non-dominants know everything about dominance, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that dominant groups now, if you're going to have diversity, you better start understanding the lived experiences of the people within your organization. You better understand that women don't get as much feed, good feedback. You better understand that minority groups within the organization aren't getting the critical assignments. You you better understand that the LGBTQ groups don't feel that they can bring their whole self to the organization. You need to understand and do what I call a meritocracy stress test on yourself and say, hey, I think this is a meritocracy. Does everyone else? And if the answer is no, you better figure out why. Yes. Um, I, um, you and I could talk for hours on this book and I know we don't have hours to talk on this book. So I'm going to try and throw a few things in quickly. I, I'd love your opinion. I, I still hear a lot um, um, from males and females that I don't believe in quotas. Mm, yeah. can, I, can I ask your perspective on quotas? Sure. Um, I'm actually, and perhaps the older I get, um, mm. <laughs> the more... I am in favor of affirmative mechanisms yes. um, because uh, it is proven, pr- not that they should be permanently embedded, but th- you do need some circuit breakers. And I feel affirmative mechanisms are circuit breakers. Yeah. And so I'm actually in favor and I'm in favor of doing the kind of research that occurs. So for example, in Norway, where you know people all say, oh, I don't want to be seen as a quota woman kind of thing. Yes. Well, yes. the quota there is a 40% of either gender, right? Mm-hmm. That, the minimum of 40% of either gender. But but because it means 40 because there's so few women, it meant 40% women. Well, when you get to critical mass of 40% like that, that whole quota thing goes away. Mm-hmm. And then you do the research and say, oh, it turns out 
the women, you know, are slightly better educated than the men. They may have one or two years less corporate experience, but not demonstrably big. So you get this research that defies all this sort of, oh my God, you know, the, the world is going to come apart here. You know, our company is just going to implode because mm -hmm. we're doing this. Well, it turns out that no, you know, there's a lot of very qualified women who can do this kind of thing. And then what, what I found most fascinating about Norway and experience is the research behind what's happened now that there's a critical mass of O's in a room full of X's, right? What's happened? What did they find? They found, for example, that women, it's 40% women, women read the board materials. <laughs> so now the men are coming to the board having read the board materials. Yes. So the very presence of the non-dominant group improves the performance of the dominant group, right? More of the board decisions are being made within the boardroom, not nightclub, golf course, country club. So in-group favoritism and closed social networks disappear. Yes. Yeah. The seed and the soil. Mm. Yeah. What? Tell, tell me about what the seed needs to do and what the soil needs to do. <laughs> well, right. You know, the seed and soil, I came up with that because I often heard from organizations, well, you know, it's, it's the individual's responsibility to make sure that their career goes well. Yes. Yeah. But then I would often hear from individuals, you know, it's my manager's responsibility to make sure everything goes well. Mm -hmm. Well, the answer to, in my mind is both. both. The seed has a 50% responsibility to make sure their career is going well, right? Because who cares most about your career besides your mother? <laughs> you, right? But the soil has a 50%, as the institution, mm -hmm. has a 50% responsibility to make sure the playing field is level, to make sure that some people aren't getting overheard and some people getting underheard, to make sure that, you know, some assignments, are, the better assignments are going to this group and not, you know, making sure that everyone in the meeting gets an opportunity to speak. Yeah. Now, I will say to the person who doesn't like to speak in meetings, for whatever reason, because grandma taught them not to speak in meetings, you know, um, you got to get a little out of your comfort zone and tell grandma to go home and start speaking up. But you, manager, has to call on this person also. Yes. I loved that part of your book around the reference to grandma in terms of we all grow up with those things that we've just, we've, we've, learnt along the way in terms of the way they the way things work um, which to me links directly to you cycling across Siberia getting fear out of your backpack every day <laughs> yeah to um, to kind of um, hit up against that can I just ask you talk we often talk about women coming up against double binds um, all the time did you come up across any in your career in terms of you know, being assertive, so you're too hard or too soft or any of those? You know, I have. I think we all go through that tightrope bias kind of thing. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've generally, I think, been able to, um, as you know, I often use humor in, in my books and yes. in my presentations. And so I find that that's often helpful. You know, and you don't always know what the what people are actually thinking about you as they hear what you. But for me, you know, I like to make sure that I have some impact. Mm. You know, that I get that that I'm heard. Mm. Yeah, 
And so, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm at this point, maybe at this point in my age, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I really don't. You know, if, you know, if somebody thinks I'm too this or too that or not enough this or not enough that, yeah, that's, you know, because incidentally, if someone says to you, well, Melissa, you are just too aggressive, right? You know what they're saying, of course, is you're just too aggressive for me. Mm. I don't like what you're doing. I don't. Mm. That has nothing to do with you, Melissa. You may, you may be perfectly appropriate for the situation, but if someone reacts, and that's what I've come to, it's like, hey, that's kind of your problem, not mine. I want everyone listening to just stop and absorb that for a minute um, because that is that is absolutely critical. If you had one, um, you know, we're both passionate about seeing women elevated into leadership positions um, you know, or non-dominant groups elevated into leadership positions. Um, if you had one sort of one thing that you thought could achieve that above all else is there one thing that stands out as a lever that could be pulled or you know i think obviously there's a number of things that help leadership you know first and foremost if you ask the military what makes for great leaders they'll say practice they'll say practice you know practice your leadership get a lot of feedback on what you're doing and keep practicing you know and so for for Women, I, you know, I like people to stretch themselves and to have the sense and to throw away all of this nonsense about women don't have confidence. It's just not true. You know, I mean, one of the things we probably should be dealing with is overconfidence for men, not underconfidence for women. Yes. You know, kind of thing. So I just I want women to just have this sense that they're entitled to be leaders. They're entitled to be as heroic as men leaders. And they're entitled to be as mediocre as men leaders, you know, but they're entitled to it. Fantastic. I'm going to ask the final question I ask of everybody, uh, and I'm so sad that it's the final question because I do want to keep talking. Um, but, Laura, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? I don't think it particularly needs to change per se. I think we all just need to identify, again, what our passion is, what makes me brave, you know, and surround myself by people with people who support my braveness, you know, have a lot of wing persons, as I call them, you know, yeah. who, will, who will help you with that. Um, I, I just think we need to understand, given all the challenges that we have in the world, how crucial it is to have brave women leaders. You know, just like it's crucial to have brave men leaders, but we need just as many brave women leaders because we need to create change because the best leaders create change, right? And change goes from the unthinkable to the impossible to the inevitable. But you need brave leaders who will move it to that inevitable. Laura, thank you so much for adding your voice to the conversation. And I know that the reflection of, um, of you saying, if you'd never asked those world leaders, if you'd never approached them for those conversations, they would never have happened. Um, and if you hadn't done that, you know, the, the Council of Women World Leaders wouldn't exist. Um, and to me, that just underpins, as you said, you know, the, the, um, 
the bravery associated with, you know, what for you was a thought in the shower. So it sounds like a pretty good thought in the shower. So perhaps you should get yours out of there more often. But wonderful to have you as part of our conversation. And I really encourage people to dive in and do some research on you um, and get access to your books because they are full of just incredible insights and wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you, Melissa, for hosting me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.